0: Amen. What a joy it is to be able to confess our need and our dependence upon God, knowing that he responds in grace to help us. That's why he sent his spirit to be our helper. And we have help right now in these moments. If you have your copy of God's word, and I trust that you do, go ahead and take and turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter Two In Connecticut, at the Beinecke Rare Book Library on Yale University's campus, there is a garden, a sunken garden directly in front of the doors, that's meant to symbolize the universe. There's a large marble pyramid that stands in one corner, symbolizing time. There's another corner that has this huge circle donut-shaped structure that's standing on its side that symbolizes energy. And in the third corner, there's a huge die that's perched on one tip, ready to topple over at any moment, and it symbolizes chance. So time, energy, and chance. The whole design was meant to symbolize the worldview of modern man, a self, existing universe that consists of time, energy, and chance. And we never know which way the die is going to fall. It could topple this way, that way. Who knows? Chance is opaque. This is the worldview of whatever. We don't know. Is life as random as that structure is made us to think that it is? Is life random? Does everything exist by chance, without any definite aim or purpose if we're honest you look around at the world and you would say well it certainly looks that way there's a war going on as we speak it certainly looks like there's no rhyme or reason for why that is happening why that's continuing there was a, an atrocity this last week school shooting where Several children lost their lives. Where's the rhyme or reason behind this? Looks like evil is winning. Looks like righteousness is losing. And it feels like we are living out the worldview of whatever, that everything around us is just happening by chance. But we're here together today to remind each other that that is not true. That's not true. What we see going on around us is not happening by chance. It's not missing God's view of what's going on. God is not far off wondering at how things will be fixed. How do you respond when difficult providences happen in your life? We tend to become troubled in troubling times. We tend to become afraid in fearful times. How do you respond? Maybe this last week there was something that happened in your life that God's hand of difficult providence brought something into your world and and you had to respond. How did you respond? How will you respond? Charles Spurgeon said, God's providence is the pillow that I lay my head on every night. So he looked at good providences and difficult providences from the hand of God and said, I can rest here. He went on to say how pleasant it is to float along the stream of providence. How pleasant it is. Here in Daniel chapter 2, we will see very distinct categories of how godless pagans respond to difficult providence and how godly people respond to difficult providence. And we will see that they could not be more different, and we will see that they are both cemented in their belief system. And I pray, I hope, and I trust that we will see ourselves in this chapter. How amazing is it that God, in his sovereign wisdom, chose us to be in this text on this Sunday to stare at what is so relevant to the way that we live our lives in this moment. Daniel chapter 2. Let's just read verses 1 through 3. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And the king gave orders to call on the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Father, we gather in your name for the purpose of seeing you in this text, and we will. You are the hero of the book of Daniel, and we want to see you on display. And then we want to see ourselves in light of you and your character and your glory. We want to see ourselves broken, humble, needy, dependent people, but people who serve an amazing God. Father, you are good, and you do good, as the psalmist says. So teach us. Even as we sang earlier, we prayed it through song. Teach our song to rise to you in these moments when temptation or difficult providences come into our lives, when trials affect us, when they toss the boat of our soul to and fro in the waves of turmoil and difficulty. God, teach us to focus our eyes on you. We gather as needy people, ready to feast on Christ. We gather as people like Samuel who simply say, speak, Lord, your servant listens. Speak to us now through your word. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from the book of Daniel. We pray in the name of Jesus, our gracious and good Savior. Amen two distinct categories of people that we will see as we go through it. We're going to look at verses 1 through 30. It's a large section, so I didn't want to read it all up front. Uh, Some of you know the story, so you kind of can think ahead as to what's going to happen. But those of you who don't know the story, maybe not as familiar with the story, this is going to be an amazing time to walk through as if you're hearing it for the very first time. And you'll see things, maybe, Lord willing, that you haven't seen before. But specifically, in light of these two different categories, there's pagans who worship false deities, and they will respond in a certain way. Three different responses from godless people. And then there's Daniel and his three friends who will respond in three different ways, diametrically opposed to the way that godless people respond. So first, let's look at category number one. Three ways that the godless respond to difficult providence. Starting in verses one through three, we could sum it up this way. The godless respond with fear anxiety, and insecurity. Fear, anxiety, and insecurity. Verse 1, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the second year, this is a little bit confusing. Let me just briefly mention. All of these events happen after chapter 1. That can be very confusing because in chapter 1, we were told that Daniel and his three friends go through a three-year program that trains them and gets them ready to do even some of the things that Daniel's about to do in interpreting dreams and things like that. So three years in chapter one, we're in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in chapter two. So are we going backwards? And the short answer is no, we're not. Uh, The reason why is we're looking at two different ways of seeing time. Babylonian time, the way that Babylon and a lot of other places back then used to um, do a a chronology of their kings coming to power, is they would have what was known as an ascension year. The, The year that the king ascended to his throne and became king, they would call that the ascension year. And then the next year, which we would think is the second year of their reign, they would call that the first year. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, he becomes king in 605 B.C. When his dad dies, he becomes king right around August, September. And when he becomes king, the remainder of 605 B.C. is not counted as his first year. That's his ascension year. So the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in a Babylonian mindset is 604. Remember, B.C. counts down to zero. 604 B.C. So the second year is 603 B.C., so we're in the third year, right? 605, 604, 603. So third year in Jewish reckoning, remember Jews, Jewish reckoning, they count any portion of a thing as the whole thing. So if you, uh, it's kind of like when you have a, a child on you know, J- December 31st, you get tax credit for the whole year, right? Uh, blessed be you who had that happen to you. Um, it's the same thing in a Jewish mindset. If there is one part of the year that you're involved in, it counts as the whole year. So, when Daniel and his three friends are brought into Babylon in 605 B.C., though it's later in the year, they consider that the first year. That's one year. Even though it's a couple months, it's still one year in their time frame. 604 B.C. is the second year. 603, if it's January 1st of 603, they would say, we've been here three years. Does this make sense? So, this is, by the way, what's so helpful in a Jewish mindset when it comes to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, he's supposed to be in the tomb for three days And a lot of people get twisted up on that issue of three days in the grave. And we think, well, he's kind of really only there for maybe a little bit more than 24 hours. But that's thinking with American mindset of time. In Jewish reckoning of time, Jesus is in the grave before the sun goes down on Friday. So that's day one. That's Friday. He's in the ground for one day. Day two is Saturday. Day three, because it's when the dawn happens. So the sun is coming up. We have a new day. So any portion of a day, any portion of a yom is a yom, as a Jewish rabbi would say. Same thing with a year. That's why it is applicable to the rest of the scriptures to understand this mentality. So we're in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, which is 603 B.C., March or April of 603 B.C. So we, are, we finished chapter one, so we're three years into the deportation in Babylon. Daniel and his three friends have been trained in the school of Babylon, Babylon University. And so here we see Nebuchadnezzar having dreams and his spirit is troubled, and his sleep leaves him. Sinclair Ferguson says, the anxieties of daylight become the monsters of the darkness. Jeffrey King says, as is often the case, the cares of the day become the cares of the night. He goes to sleep, and it says that his spirit is troubled. Literally, it's his spirit was struck. He he cannot sleep because he's so troubled and so he gives orders to the magicians to the wise men to the conjurers, to the sorcerers, to the Chaldeans to tell him his dreams the irony of this is we have Nebuchadnezzar who is the man in power over the entire known world at the time he has authority over everything but he cannot have authority over his own dreams so he calls in the magicians there's four uh, people groups in this list in verse 2 Magicians. Uh, The root word for the the word magician is a word for a stylus or a pen. So it's probably people that wrote down uh, in the form of uh, magic spells or things like that or recorded what was going on. The next word is conjurers, which some of your translations might say astrologers or enchanters. They study the stars to predict the future. But they also have power uh, of necromancy. They're communicators with the dead. They're very involved in dark arts and things like that. And then we have this word sorcerers. Those were those who who would uh, practice incantations. And then we have the Chaldeans, who are the wise men in general. That's just a term for the wise men. So Nebuchadnezzar brings them all in. They stand before the king. Verse 3, the king says, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. I'm anxious. Why is he anxious? Why is he troubled? Why is he restless? Nebuchadnezzar is about 30 years old at this time. Assyria had fallen to Babylon eight years prior to this account. And in Israel, a place that he had just taken over three years ago, Ashkelon in the north was rebelling against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was having to send his first troops from Babylon back to Israel to fight in this military conquest. So maybe he's thinking, I'm losing my kingdom. Maybe his God is warning him of something ominous. Maybe a coup in his own people group uh, is being planned around, and maybe the magicians and the conjurers and the, the Chaldeans are planning a coup. Again, the irony is palpable here. Nebuchadnezzar, named after the god Nebo, Nebo is the god of wisdom and understanding. And this man, named after the god of wisdom, has no wisdom left in the darkness of ignorance. And Daniel, who is 12 years Nebuchadnezzar's junior, is poised and patient and discerning and capable of answering, while Nebuchadnezzar is troubled, restless, and rash. As Dale Ralph Davis says, and by the way, I'm going to quote Dale Ralph Davis a lot. If you can get your hands on anything Dale Ralph Davis has written, get your hands on it. He's an amazing, amazing pastor, scholar, uh, Old Testament uh professor, he, when he preaches from the Old Testament, if he was preaching from Daniel, which he's preached through Daniel before, if he were preaching right now, he would open up a Hebrew Bible and just read from Hebrew like it was nothing. He is an amazing scholar, an amazing man of God, um, and he writes very, very helpful commentaries. He says it this way, How easy it is to terrify strong men who are outside of Christ. All it took was a dream for Nebuchadnezzar to become afraid and insecure and anxious. How do non-believers deal with difficult providences? Number one, through fear, anxiety, and insecurity. Number two, they respond with self-reliance, control, and power. Number two, they respond with self-reliance, control, and power. Verse 4, after he says, I want to know this dream, give me the meaning of the dream, the Chaldeans then speak to the king. This is verses 4 through 11. The Chaldeans speak and they say in Aramaic, which by the way, this is our hint when it says in Aramaic, we are going to move from Hebrew as the original language to now Aramaic from this point all the way to the end of chapter 7. And then we'll go back to Hebrew chapter 8 all the way through the end of the book. But this is for the nations. This is for all the people groups. So this is now in the public tongue of the masses. This isn't just for Jewish people in Hebrew. This is for everyone in Aramaic. And they say, O king, live forever. Which, again, ironic for those of you who know. What is this dream about? This dream is about the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die and your kingdom's going to be obliterated. O king, live forever, even though your dream says you're not. Tell us your dream will tell you the interpretation. That's an easy thing to do, right? Tell me your dream, and I'll tell you what I think it means. You had a dream that you are falling? You've ever had that dream? I'm just falling, and I wake up in my bed, ugh! When you fall, you, you never actually hit the ground. You know what, I think, that, I think that that dream probably means that something wrong is going on in your life, and you feel like you're out of control, and you just feel like you can't get a grip because your feet aren't standing on solid ground. See, I could be one of these people, right? And so they do that. Tell us your dream and we'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar replies, no, this is too important and I know that you can play tricks on me like that. So he says, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. The command from me is firm Uh, maybe some of your translations uh, might say the command is or or, it has gone from my mind some people would say that uh, this is a reference to the dream having left his mind so Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember the dream that's actually a a very bad translation of that Aramaic text so it doesn't mean that the dream has gone from my mind it literally means the command from me has gone forth it's firm you cannot challenge this command but that does bring up the question does Nebuchadnezzar remember his dream or has he forgotten it? Which I'll tell you right off the bat, I don't know. I don't think the Bible gives us enough information to to say so. It would seem that if Nebuchadnezzar completely forgot it and everyone knew that he completely forgot it, that the wise men would have at least taken a shot at giving some form of an interpretation, right? If Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't remember anything about it and I'm terrified and I wish I remembered, I wish I knew, but I can't remember anything that I dreamt. They would have said, well, I think you jumped something to the effect of clouds and you were scared and and then you woke up, right? Boom, there you go. I remember your dream. So it seems like the fact that they're not making any conjectures about it makes me think that he does remember it. At the same time, if Nebuchadnezzar remembered the dream, why didn't he tell it to them? Because he's so terrified of what's going on, wouldn't he have said, you need to know it because I desperately need to know the meaning. Now, maybe he's terrified that they themselves are planning the coup that's going to destroy the statue of himself in the dream. So maybe that's why he's not volunteering it. I don't know. I don't know if he knows it or doesn't know it. What we do know, without a shot of a doubt, is he's a very angry man right now. And he says, my word is firm. You tell me my dream, and you tell me the meaning. And if you do not, I will, quote, Tear you limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap, or some of your translations might say, a dung pile. That's literally what they would do. They would kill you in very bad ways, and then they would turn your house, they would raise your house, and then they would turn it into a manure pile and a trash heap. But at the same time, while Nebuchadnezzar is extremely harsh, he's also extremely generous. Verse 6, if you do declare the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. So declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Verse 7, the wise men say, we can't do that. Please tell us the dream. We'll tell you the meaning, but tell us the dream. We can't read your mind. We don't know what you dreamt. And he responds in verse 8, I know for certain that you are, my Bible says, bargaining for time Literally, in Aramaic, it's buying time. How cool is it that one of our expressions that we use today comes from an Aramaic phrase used over 2,500 years ago? You're just buying time. You're stalling. I know what you're doing. You've seen the command from me as firm, that if you don't make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. You have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed, Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Tell me now. This is why I say, godless men, when they are uh, struck with a, a difficult providence, they first respond with fear, anxiety, and insecurity, and then they respond with, how can I fix this? Nebuchadnezzar says, we can fix this. You can fix this. Tell me what's going on. And verse 10, the wise men say, We can't fix it. The Chaldeans answered the king and they said, listen to their words. This is amazing. There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king commands is difficult and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. How true is that statement? They are setting up Daniel. They're just putting the T on the T-ball for Daniel just to hit a home run when he gets the the meaning of the dream, right? Because then he's going to say, I didn't do this, God did this, just like your wise men said. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. God can move in the ungodly to say things like this that are true. God can move in the king's heart, Proverbs 21, verse 1, like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart just, you can take your hand and you can move the water this way or move the water that way, however you move the water. That's the king's heart. He can move it wherever he wants. What the Chaldeans are saying in verses 10 through 11 is a genuine confession to the failure of paganism. Paganism, as Dale Ralph Davis says, is nothing but a religious cul-de-sac. It can give no sure word from the outside. By contrast then, and in light of the whole chapter, he is saying that life is a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. They are telling exiled Israel that there is no need to be awed by paganism despite its trappings and splendor because it is nothing but empty and dark. So the wise men said, we can't do it. And specifically they say, no man can do this, only the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar, if you can't do this, you're just a man, you're not God. You're just a man, you're not God. And that leads to point number three. When godless people are met with difficult providences. Number one, they respond with fear, anxiety, and insecurity. Number two, they respond with self-reliance, power, control. I want to make sure I can deal with this on my own. I want to make sure I can handle this all myself. And finally, number three, when they realize that they can't, they respond with anger. They respond with anger. Nebuchadnezzar becomes furious. This is verses 12 and 13. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Why does Nebuchadnezzar respond this way? He's responding this way because of what the wise men told him. They told him flat out, there is a God who could do this, And since you can't do it, you're not that God. Nebuchadnezzar, you're not God, and you're unable to do this. Nebuchadnezzar is angry because he was just told he's not a God. He's powerless. Non-believers, once they are given that spotlight in their life to show them that they have no control over anything, they freak out because they thought they did. They thought they had control. Believers look at it and go, we knew that control was all an illusion. We have no control of anything. So when that spotlight hits and it says, you're out of control, you have no control, we go, we knew that. Not a surprise to us. Nebuchadnezzar becomes furious. His response is that of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? If there is a God, I want to be him. And if I can't be him, I'm going to get angry. That's the real issue here with Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't like deep down that he knew he wasn't in control. And sometimes it's not anger. Sometimes it's depression, despair. Sometimes it's despondency. Sometimes it's giving up altogether. But this is the way that non-believers deal as a pattern. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, I struggle with those things. I believe in Christ. I, I follow him. I've submitted my life to him. He is Lord over my life. But I still struggle with those things. And I would say amen and amen. We all do. I'm saying that this is the pattern. Not just you struggle with it here and there. But this is the pattern of non-believers. The pattern of non-believers is fear, anxiety, insecurity, self-reliance, self-dependence. A sense of I have control over everything and I have power over everything. And when you realize you don't, you become angry. In contrast to that, we have three ways that the godly respond. Three ways that the godly respond. And it's very simple to see these three ways. I can give them to you right now. Godly respond with patience, with prayer, and with praise. The godly, when faced with difficult providences, the godly respond with patience, with prayer, and with praise. Let's look at number one, patience. This is verses 14 through 16. Then Daniel re- re- replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard. He responds with discretion and discernment. He knows that difficult providence comes from the hand of a loving God. You can focus on difficulties or you can focus on the God behind the difficulties. Spurgeon says, goodness is the bud of which providence is the flower. Every providence, good or bad, comes from the hand of God, that bud of goodness. So where unbelievers would respond with threats and anger, Daniel responds with patience, prudence, and poise. He responds with no panic, no sense of urgency. He responds with discretion and discernment. Verse 14 says, discretion comes from a word, a root word that means counsel. So discretion, having discretion is acting as if you were given godly counsel. Counsel. And then discernment comes from an uh, uh, Aramaic root word for a tasty, something that's delicious and tasty. So you respond in a tasteful way. This is appropriate. It's not, it's not sour. It's not biting. It's a tasteful. So Daniel's responding with wisdom, looking as if he had been given much godly counsel, and then with a, a tasteful spirit. He responds to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard. Some of your Bibles might say the, the chief executioner. That comes from what his name comes from. His name comes from an Aramaic word that means to kill. I don't know why your parents would name you that. I mean, maybe he wants, they want him to be some mighty warrior. Or maybe the pain was just so great in childbirth that his mom said, you're killing me. And dad said, that's his name. And there you go. Ariok comes in. This is the first, by the way, of which Daniel and his friends are hearing of this. Knock on the door. Yes, it's Ariok. I need to kill you. What? (laughs) Time out. What is going on? But Daniel just says, um, after hearing from Ariok, verse 15, what's the reason that the decree is so urgent? Why is there such urgency here? Where's the dream going? Is the dream going somewhere? Why why can't we just relax? Uh, The word urgent comes from a word for harsh. Why is this such a harsh decree? It doesn't seem like this fits what just happened. He had a dream. He doesn't like the dream. And now he's going to killing people. This escalated very quickly. And Ariok listens to him. Uh, why does Ariok listen to Daniel? Why does Ariok listen to him? Because of Daniel's character and his reputation in chapter 1. Arioch informs Daniel about the matter. Verse 16, Daniel goes and requests of the king himself that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel's asking for more time. Can I just tell you, this is a good principle for living life. It's always good to ask for more time. It's always good to just say, I need to think about that. I need to get back to you later. Just press pause and think about it. What Daniel's really doing here, if we can say it this way, he's giving God a chance to work these things out. Before before Daniel jumps in and says, let me fix the problem, he says, can we just give God a chance to fix the problem? Can we just let God fix this problem? How often when you are met with a difficult providence, do you say, all right, I got to figure out how to solve this? Daniel says, hey, before we figure this out, let's take it to God and let God figure it out. In the Old Testament, we have examples of this. Hezekiah, you remember, he was... Uh, king of Judah, he had a deadly illness. He was going to die. He was on his deathbed, and he said, can we go to God? He doesn't go to the doctors. He says, can we go to God? And he lives. King Asa is kind of the opposite of that. He has a foot problem, not going to die from it. And he doesn't go to God. He goes to the doctors, relying on himself, doesn't like God, doesn't want to go to God, and he ends up dying from this foot problem. Now, I'm not saying that you should put off going to the doctor. What I am saying is, as you are going to the doctor, Make sure you've gone to God first. Give it to God. Also, look at Daniel's amazing faith. He just waltzes into the king's presence. Hey, king, hi, Neb. I have a question. Heard you're trying to kill us. Can I ask? What is this faith based on? I think it's based on chapter one. He had asked a request in chapter one, right? Hey, can we not eat that food? Can we change our diet? And they said yes, and it worked out well. So I think he's doing what David's going to do when he's going to fight Goliath. Remember David fighting Goliath? David says, I know I can take this guy. Why? Because I've fought the the lions and the bears. I've protected the sheep. I've defended the sheep from all of these enemies, and God will give me the ability to do that here. He's going back to, both David and Daniel, are going back to their past, and they're saying, I have seen God's faithfulness in the past, and I know he's going to be faithful in the present. That's why David wrote Psalm 23, you remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I'm not going to want, I have nothing that I need that I'm lacking, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, that's what he's done, I know that's what he does, because that's what he's done, I've seen it, and even though I am now walking in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil, because he's with me, because he's always been with me, I've seen his faithfulness in the past, so I know he's faithful in the present, I I wonder, this is happening before Esther. I wonder if Esther is going to pick up Daniel, read it, and then say, I can go to the king too. Remember, the scepter is supposed to be held out, and he invites you in, and she says, If I die, I die. And she walks in, and dependent on the God that Daniel worships and praises, Esther goes in as well. I wonder if she was encouraged by Daniel's testimony. Daniel responds, with patience. Secondly, Daniel responds with prayer. This is verses 17 through 18. He responds with prayer. Verse 17, Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he's using their Jewish names, their Hebrew names, to remind them of who they are in worshipers of Yahweh. And they're going to request, verse 18, compassion from the God of heaven, concerning the mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I love this. He could have prayed alone, but Daniel says, we need to pray together. He knows that there's power in praying with others, and he says, we all need to be in on this. We all need to be praying. And, By this time, they would have had the book of Psalms, most of the psalms at their disposal. So I'm wondering if they had memorized a lot of those psalms, and I'm wondering what psalms they would have been praying as they prayed together. Maybe Psalm 68, verse 20. God is to us a God of deliverance, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Maybe Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. Maybe Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Maybe Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32, which I would encourage you to write down and read on your own time. It's uh, people saying as they're in a ship, the ship's going down, God, please save us, and God does. They respond, and they plead with God. To request compassion, verse 18, from the God of heaven. That, by the way, is another ironic statement because the religious superstitions of the Babylonians was that the stars and the heavens dictated what was going on. And so Daniel's saying the God above the heavens, the God who owns those stars, and calls them all by name. They, They plead for life. Notice they're not wanting to be martyrs here. It's okay to say, God, I don't want to die. And they also say, God, please help our friends who are pagans, godless pagans. Please help them not to die as well. So they pray. Verse 19, the mystery is revealed to Daniel in a night vision. This gives us two possibilities of what's going on here. Either they pray together for a while, they go to bed, and Daniel receives a dream. Or as they're praying in the night... God gives them a vision. I think it's probably the latter because it's the word for vision, not the word for dream. The word for dream was used earlier in the chapter. This is a word for vision. So I'm guessing as they're praying together, God gives them a vision. And God gives them a vision of the dream and its meaning that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But notice they go right to prayer. They go right to prayer. A commentator by the name of D. Duke says, almost everyone believes that prayer is important but there's a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing it is essential. Essential means that there are things that will not happen without prayer. Do you believe that? Daniel and his friends believe that there are things that will not happen if we don't take this to the Lord. So they pray. Daniel and his three friends respond, number one, with patience, number two, with praying, and finally, number three, with praise. Finally, number three, with praise. After being so filled with poise, and by the way, you will search in vain through the whole book of Daniel to find any one of God's people responding aggressively, angry, or condescendingly to any pagan. You never see it in Daniel. Again, a window into how we should respond to our own governing authorities. You never see them with any sense of condescending, aggressive, angry. No, it's patient. It's discerning, it's patient. And as they live out patience with their leaders and they pray, God answers. And they respond, number three, with praise. They respond, number three, with praise. God answers. Verse 19, the mystery is revealed to Daniel in a night vision. God answers their prayer. He tells them what the dream is. By the way, God always answers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God will always answer you. God will hear you, uh, unless you are a husband who is not uh, walking in an understanding way with your wife. God will always hear you, and he will always answer. And biblically, according to Psalm 8411, I believe that we can say without a shadow of a doubt, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... ...and you are walking faithfully with the Lord... ...and you ask him for something... ...he will always give you what you're asking for... ...or something better. Psalm 84 The Lord is a sun and a shield... He ...who gives grace and glory... ...and no good thing does he withhold... ...from those who walk uprightly. So if you're walking uprightly... ...and you ask him for something... And it's a good thing, and you have to qualify what good means. Good in our minds means easy, fun, enjoyable, and not hard. That's not what good means in God's mind. Good in God's mind means most glorifying to him and most conforming you into the image of Christ, which almost always involves a chiseling away of your soul and your character. Because you and I don't look like Jesus And so we need hard providences to chisel away those areas that don't look like him. So when we pray, he will either say, yes, that's a good thing that will bring me glory and will bring you good and will conform you to the image of Christ, so here you can have that. Or he will say, no, but I will give you something better. Again, better in our mind, we would think something easier, something more fun. He would say, no, another trial, another difficult providence. Something challenging that you are going to come to your wits end because of this issue. But I'm giving it to you as a good gift. God loves to give his kids gifts that knock out any sense of foundation of self-reliance under ourselves. God loves doing that. Because he loves us. So they cry out to him and they say, would you please answer? And he answers by giving them the the interpretation of the dream, the dream itself and the interpretation. And the story would flow really nicely if immediately after verse 19, we just go to verse 24. There's no real need for this praise. But Daniel's not in a hurry. He wasn't in a hurry at the beginning. Hey, what's the hurry, right? <laughs> That's what Daniel was saying. Arioch, why are we hurrying here? And once he receives the interpretation, I just, I wonder... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah are hanging out with Daniel. They're all praying. Daniel says, I got it. Maybe they write it down so they don't forget. And one of those guys says, let's go. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. And Daniel says, hang on. We need to say thank you. And I just wonder in sanctified imagination if one of those three friends goes, hmm, can we, can we praise as we're running? Can we we save it till later? How about we just praise in front of King Nebuchadnezzar? How about we get there, we give him the interpretation, and we praise God then, because they're trying to kill us. Let's hurry up and do this. Daniel says, no. I want to adore God because of what he's done. Sinclair Ferguson says, the test of our spirituality does not lie only in the fervency of our prayers in times of crisis, But in the wholeheartedness of our worship when God acts in grace, we must not rush from our solution to the next item on the list. We got it. We figured it out. Let's go. Calvin says, whenever God confers any remarkable blessings to his servants, they are more stirred up to praise him than before. Uriah Smith says, let Daniel be our example in this. Let no mercy from the hand of God fail of its due return of thanksgiving and praise to him. Spurgeon once shared the gospel with a woman who was on her deathbed. And as she was hearing the gospel, she got saved. And she was dumbfounded that God in his grace would save her at the very end of her life and cleanse her of all of her sin. And she said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if God really does save me, he will never hear the end of it. That's what we need to be like. Brothers and sisters, we need to say, God has saved us. There's nothing left for him to do to prove to us that he loves us. There's nothing left. So who are we like? Are we like the nine lepers in Luke 17 who say, thank you for the gift, I'm out of here. Are we like the one who turns? They praise God. And this, this uh, prayer, this prayer of praise is just magnificent. We studied it a couple of years ago. So I'm going to go through it quickly, even though it alone deserves a sermon on its own of how he praises God. But verse 20 through 23 It's really, it mirrors a couple other psalms. Psalm 113, Psalm 103, Psalm 31. Again, I think Daniel probably had these psalms ringing in his mind and his heart. He praises God. Verse 20. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Eternal praise for wisdom and power belong to him. So he praises God for who he is and for what he's done. That's the crux of his prayer of praise. For wisdom and power Wisdom, A.W. Tozer says, in the knowledge of the holy, the idea of God is infinitely wise as the root of all truth is the datum of belief necessary to the soundness of all other beliefs about God. Wisdom, among other things, listen to this carefully, this is such a good quote, so helpful. Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. Wisdom sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless perfection and precision. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest amount of time. All of his acts are as pure as they are wise and as good as they are wise and pure. And not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could never be imagined. That's what it means for God to be a wise God. And not only is God a wise God, but he's a powerful God. Power just means he's able to carry out the right decisions of his wisdom. So he's wise and powerful, and that's why Daniel praises him. Verse 22. One, it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. He's the one who graciously gifts these things. It is he, verse 22, who reveals the profound and hidden things. Profound, those are things unable to be known by humans. Hidden things, those are things hidden from our understanding. Namely, in this case, the dream and its interpretation. I love the next part of verse 22. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. He knows what is in the darkness. That means two things. Number one, that means he knows what is hidden and revealed, but he also knows what is happening in the darkness, in the evil, in the bad. He doesn't dwell in it, right? He dwells in the light, and darkness has no dwelling with him. But he knows about the darkness. He doesn't dwell in darkness. He dwells in the light because he himself is light. But he sees it. He knows it. He's familiar with it. He he understands the darkness. Brothers and sisters, that means that God knows the evil that's happening. And he knows why it's happening. And he knows how to redeem it. When we look on the outside and we say, this has no redemptive value whatsoever. God says, I see the darkness. And I can redeem it. It is he who reveals, verse twenty. Uh, Two, he reveals the hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. The light dwells with him. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers. That's, again, a remembrance of God's faithfulness. You are faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've been faithful through and through. And I give you praise. You've given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. You made known to me what, plural, we requested of you. He brings in his friends. You've made known to us. The kings matter. Daniel doesn't attribute to his own prayers any special efficacy. He's not saying, thank you because I'm awesome and I'm the one who figured this out. He could have taken all the glory for himself, but he knows this isn't of me. This is all of God. So he brings in his friends with him. He praises. And you might think, well, yeah, of course he's praising because Daniel and his friends got what they wanted. Everything goes well for them. Of course they're going to praise. Patience, prayer, and praise, well, if the prayer hadn't gone so well, probably the third one wouldn't be praise, right? I would say, no, I think they still would have praised, and I think we could see it in the book of Daniel. Fire, furnace, that we're going to look at in a few weeks. Lion's den, I'm still going to praise the Lord. Do whatever you want to do with me, I'm still going to praise. Even if, fiery furnace, that beautiful clause, even if our God doesn't save you from your hands, Nebuchadnezzar, our God will save us. And maybe that salvation looks like letting us die in the fiery furnace, but we'll be safe. They still praise. They would have praised. Maybe it would have been a lament, a praise of lament. And if you're newer to our church, you weren't here when we studied the book of Habakkuk, I would encourage you to go back, listen to our Habakkuk series, and we did a study on what lament is. That it is a prayer of praise through lament, and maybe they would have lamented. But they praise They praise because God in his grace has given them this amazing gift. What do you do when you receive the answer to the prayer that you've been praying? What do you do? Can I encourage you? Maybe start writing out your prayers. Because if you write them out, or at least you write the content of what's uh, the, the thing you're praying for, You'll be able to see God answer in amazing ways and be able to praise Him specifically for it. As I was thinking through this passage, which this passage is just profound, I was thinking, there's a desire that I have for you. It's a difficult desire. And so I say this with caution, and I say this with care. But I hope and I pray that God will graciously and gently and tenderly bring you through a trial or a difficult providence that brings you to the end of yourself. Because when you get to that place and you say, I can't do this. Only God can do this. And then you see God be faithful, that changes your life. That changes your life. I don't know. I I think that many of us have been there before. Many of us have been there in that moment where you're going through something and you're trying and you're trying. You're like the disciples in the boat. in Mark chapter four, it caught in the storm. Uh, Let's try and set the sail. Let's take the sail down. Let's row out of this. Let's there's we can get out of this storm. And then you look at Christ and you say. Do you care? Where are you? What are you doing? Do you care that I'm dying here? We need to come to the end of ourselves. And when we do, God in his grace says, I've been here all along for you. And I love you. And I want to prove my faithfulness to you. But in order for that to happen, you need to say, I can't do it. And throw yourself at my mercy. I hope that you go through a season. And I pray that it's gentle, that it's not... Harsh or difficult, it, it will be hard. But I pray that it's gentle. That God is careful with you, and I know He will be. But I pray that you face something that's deeply too big for you to handle, and you're forced to go to God and find that He is faithful, and that there's nothing too big for Him to handle. You, you wake up the next day after seeing that and experiencing that. You wake. You wake up a different man or woman. And I pray that you would realize that. There's so much left in this text that we are going to have to save for next week. For this week, I want to end by just asking you how do you respond to difficult prov- providences? Do you respond like the pagans in fear and anxiety? And a self-reliance and an insecurity because you know you're out of control and you try to hold that power and keep it all together and, and then you lash out in anger because you realize I'm not God and I can't hold this together. Do you respond like Daniel with patience? I trust the Lord. Do you respond with prayer, running to Him? Do you respond with praise? The person who trusts in God fears no bad news, They're like the Proverbs 31 woman who laughs at the days to come. (laughs) There's nothing that can take me from the hand of God. What do I have to be afraid of? In the middle of the Civil War, during the middle of one of the bloodiest battles of the war, with cannonballs and musket fire all around, soldiers jumping, running, fleeing, screaming, two officers walked towards each other, standing upright, looking like they had not a care in the world. One nodded to the other as they passed by. And when they came within talking distance of each other, one said to the other, what is the chief end of man? And the other said, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Which you know is the first question of the Westminster Catechism. And the man said, ah, I knew you were a Westminster Catechism man. Then they went on their way, walking in the midst of a battle with a smile on their face, knowing God's in control. Why do believers respond the way that Daniel and his three friends respond? Because they trust in a good God who has proven his love for them once and for all at the cross. And therefore, for us, every promise to keep us and to do good to us is a yes and amen at the bloody cross and the empty tomb. It's not so much about how we respond It's about why we respond the way we respond. May we respond with patience, prayer, and praise knowing God is in control. He has given us his son and his faithfulness stretches through all generations. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, your amazing grace, your love, and your faithfulness. We want to respond by praising you for your faithfulness, that morning by morning new mercies I see, that all I have needed, your hand is provided. You are faithful to us indeed. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.